Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We are in Genesis chapter 38 today. We are going to look at the account of Judah and Tamar. And I will give you a disclaimer before we begin um, that we will deal with some, um, some items of an adult nature. We will do it in a way that is hopefully not scandalous and hopefully not um, uh, too harmful to the little ears in this, uh, in this sanctuary, but we are going to deal with some adult sins here. And um, so please be forewarned. But uh, we will look today at Genesis chapter 38, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. This, it was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she, after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Beside, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. 
Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took the scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, and his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. And his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, as we look at this passage in the Scriptures, we know that You have ordained and inspired everything that is in Your Word. You've ordained and inspired it so that the man of God, the person of God, may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. We are trained, we are corrected, we are taught, we are brought up in righteousness through Your Word. Speak to us today in this passage. Speak to us through Your Word so that we might be prepared for the work that You have for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at the account of Joseph and his brothers. We ended the account with Joseph being sold by two traitors uh, and then taken to Egypt and being sold by traitors to Potiphar, the, the chief of Pharaoh's guard. And as we look at chapter 38, we would expect to read what we actually read in chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. But instead, we have this story of Judah leaving the promised land and getting involved with a Canaanite woman and all this just kind of weird stuff happening. His sons die. He doesn't give his wife to the third son. The wife goes about doing some, some really shady things to get a child. And we think, isn't this a story about Joseph? Why are we talking about Judah and Tamar right here in the middle of Joseph's story? Why did God put this particular chapter here? There is a tension that we are left with at the end of chapter 37 that we may not realize. Jacob has had 12 sons. One of them was a tattletale and an arrogant dreamer. And the other ten of them, Benjamin was a little bit young, so ten of the other sons have conspired against the one son. And we're left with the question at the end of chapter 37, not only what's going to happen to Joseph, but we should also be left with the question, what's going to happen to Jacob's family? Because it really looks like it's falling apart. And is it really falling apart as badly as I think it is? And the opening of chapter 38 answers the question, it is worse than you thought it was. Because Jake, Judah leaves the family. Remember, Simeon and Levi disqu dis uh, disqualified themselves from leadership of the family um, in their attack on Shechem. Reuben has disqualified himself from leadership in the family in trying to take power from Jacob by, by sleeping with Jacob's concubine. Jacob's family's in trouble. 
And Judah has said, you know what? There's enough junk going on. I'm heading out on my own. So not only are we left with the question, is Jacob's family in trouble? Yes, it is. But who is going to save Jacob's family? And today we're going to begin to see the answer to that. And we're going to see that God's salvation of Jacob's family comes in an unexpected way. And we will also see the greatness of God's grace. Two things and I want us to keep in mind as we consider the full story. I'm going to walk our way through the story and then we'll consider God's unexpected salvation and God's greatness. But two things I want us to keep in mind. First off, as we read this, this probably takes place over about a period of about 20 years, especially the first 10 or 11 verses there. Judah had to leave Hebron. Judah had to uh, find a wife. Judah's first son had to get old enough to marry a wife. Judah's second son also had to be old enough to marry a wife when the first son died, which I'll explain all that here in a few minutes. Um, and so this is probably a period of about 22 years that parallels Joseph, J, yeah, Joseph's 22 years in Egypt that we'll begin to look at next week. Secondly, I want us to consider, if you as a human were going to make up a document that became the foundation of a religion, would you include this story? No, probably not, because we would want the heroes of the faith to look like, well, heroes. Judah is very important in the life of Israel, and he's not a very good guy in this particular passage. If I were writing the story that was going to become the foundation of a religion, I would just, like, I'd erase this chapter, I'd rip it out and tear it out, because it makes Judah look like not a very good guy. But it's in there. And it should give us confidence that, that God has truly inspired this because humans would not leave a story like this in the Scriptures. Only a God-inspired document would keep something like this in there and make the heroes of our faith look like something far, far less than hero, heroes. So Judah resided in the Promised Land for a while. And then he decided, hey, I'm going to leave my family. Now, it's interesting that he does stay within the promised land. All of the place names in here are within the area of Israel that would eventually become Judah after the conquest, the, the land of Judah after the conquest. So there is a little bit of tie there still um, into the promised land. But Judah is very, very far from the promises of God here. He has descended geographically from Hebron down into the area of Adullam. He has descended morally from the promises of God to marrying a Canaanite, which we have learned hopefully throughout the rest of our study so far of the book of Genesis, that marrying a Canaanite is not a good idea. But Judah leaves the family. He aligns himself with the Canaanite people. He marries a Canaanite. He fathers three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And then we begin to get the history of his family. He finds a wife for his oldest son, Ur, and Ur is so wicked in the sight of God that God puts him to death. Now, we don't know what Ur did. We do know that the name Ur is evil spelled backwards in Hebrew. So we're given a, a, a hint right there at his birth that he is a pretty bad dude. Um, it's also the first time in Scripture we're told that God directly put someone to death because of their sin. But then Tamar is taken and given to Onan, the middle son. Now this sounds weird to us as 21st century Americans. But this is uh, an ancient practice called leveret marriage. 
land, property, name, respect, and the provision for a female in this culture came through a male. And so Tamar dies without any children, without any sons. And so in order for her to be protected in the land, in order for her to be provided for in the land, and in order for Ur's name, even as despicable as it was, to continue and to his inheritance to stay in his family, Tamar must have a son. Well, it then becomes the responsibility of the next brother to find a way to provide a son for the wife. It sounds really weird to us, but it was normal practice during this this time. It it was even codified by Moses in Deuteronomy, uh, this idea of leveret marriage, to protect the woman, to protect the name and the uh, provision for the woman when her husband died and she was sonless. So Judah says to Onan, take your sister-in-law Tamar and give her a son so that Ur's inheritance will continue on. Well, Onan refuses his duty as the brother-in-law. He didn't have to take the duty as the brother-in-law. He could have passed it off to somebody else. We see that in Ruth, where Boaz is the closest relative to provide a son for Naomi uh, through Ruth. Or he's not the closest. The closest gives up his right to Boaz so that Boaz can marry Ruth and provide that son for Naomi. Onan did not have to do it, but... He dies as well because of his sin. Now, what was the sin of Onan? The sin is twofold. The first part of it is greed. If there's no older son or male descendant of the older son to get the inheritance, the double portion of inheritance that is due to the oldest son, who gets the inheritance? Well, it's the next son in line, which is Onan. Onan does not want to provide an heir for Ur because he would lose out on money and sheep and land and possessions and privilege. Onan is now the oldest son. He doesn't want to give that up. Second part of Onan's sin is objectification. Because he did not say to Tamar and to Judah, I am not willing to take on the role of provider for Tamar, I'm going to pass it on to somebody else. He took all the pleasure of the relationship without the responsibility. Basically, he turned Tamar into an object for his own sexual gratification. He totally demeaned her. He totally dehumanized her. He totally just turned her into, please forgive me, a toy. And those two things together, the greed and the sexual objectification of Tamar, is the sin that Omar, are the sins that Omar committed that caused God to take his life. Unfortunately, that second sin is very real in our world today. We see it mainly in the use of pornography. We can take an image of another person And we can receive sexual gratification from it without ever taking responsibility for that person. Without ever saying that God has intended this union to provide children in the world and also to be a physical representation of an internal intimacy that God has designed for marriage. And we just basically turn it into 
into an act of, of physical pleasure and objectification. We totally demean ourselves. We totally demean the other person in it because we are not willing to take responsibility for, for an act that God has designed for a very specific purpose and for a very specific way. It, it's hard to talk about, folks, and thankfully it doesn't come up that often. We don't have to talk about it that often, but it is a reality in our culture today. And we are tempted oftentimes in the church to, to embrace that as well as individuals. The temptation for sexual objectification is as real for you and I as it is for somebody out there, outside the doors of the church. God covers the guilt. God covers the shame of sexual sin. All of that was nailed to the cross. And the forgiveness and the peace is ours through the work of Jesus. But we have to guard our hearts against sexual objectification in our lives. So Onan dies. Judah refuses the right, the leveret marriage to Tamar through Shelah because he's so old. And because Judah thinks that Tamar is the reason that Ur and Onan died. He has this, this uh, superstitious idea that Tamar is a bad luck charm. And so he says, go back to your father and wait for me to provide for you. He gives up. He, he abdicates his right to protect her. He abdicates his right to provide for her because he looks after his own status instead of the well-being of his daughter-in-law. Well, life moves on. Shelah grows up. Shelah's not given. Tamar's not given to Shelah to, to provide that son, to provide that heir for Ur. And Judah's wife dies as well. If, if you look at Judah's wife, it is filled with death. Judah's life, it is filled with death. Two sons have died so far. His wife dies. And Tamar hatches this plan. She takes off her, morning, her, her clothes of mourning. She puts on a prostitute's outfit. The, the language is actually far worse than that in the original language. Um, but she puts on a prostitute outfit. And she goes and she tricks Judah into fathering a child. And in that, she takes this, uh, these, these tokens of pledge because he didn't bring money with him. He wasn't planning on this. This was an impulsive act. Um, and so... Uh, when Judah finds out she's pregnant, he has this double standard to where the woman is punished for adultery, but not the man. And she says, you know what, I'm willing to be punished for my adultery, but um, see if you recognize these things, because the man who gave me these things is the father of my child or children. And Judah, Judah looks at those things and he's hit with this reality. It, it actually softens the language in here also. He says in here, she is more righteous than I. It actually says, she is righteous. I am not. And Judah comes to this epiphany that things are not right in his life. And we are going to see these things change. And, and, and we're going to see his life change through this particular event in his life. Tamar is pregnant with twins. This is a symbol to us. The last person we saw in the scriptures that was pregnant with twins was Jacob, the chosen son who was younger. Judah is given twins. He is the chosen son who is the younger as well. We'll see later on that Jacob tells him that the scepter, rulership, kingship will not pass from your hands. And in fact, as we read from Matthew 1, and the one name I really, really needed to get right, I butchered. Tamar was the mother of Perez, who was a descendant or an ancestor of Jesus. 
God works salvation in an unexpected way. God uses a Canaanite widow pretending to be a prostitute to bring repentance, reconciliation, and restoration to Judah and Jacob's family. I mentioned mentioned earlier that this account probably takes place over a period of 20 or 22 years. While Joseph is in Egypt being groomed to become the immediate savior of the family of Jacob, Judah is in Adullam being groomed to be the ancestor of the ultimate savior of God's people. And God uses the daring and loyalty of a foreigner to bring Judas, Judah to his senses. Judah has descended from the plain of Hebron to the, to the area of Judah. He has descended morally into this abyss of, of, of Canaanite paganism. And yet, as I said, God unexpectedly uses a woman dressed up as a prostitute to bring him to his senses. But in seeing God's unexpected salvation, we also see God, the greatness of God's grace. We don't know what Ur's sin was, but God took his life. We do do know what Onan's sin was, and God took his life. Judah, in being the father of these two men, was responsible for their upbringing, was responsible for teaching them to be good men who followed God's law and God's rules. Judah abdicates his role as provider and father of Tamar. Judah enters into a relationship with somebody he thinks is a prostitute. Judah deserves the full weight of God's judgment, which Ur and Onan received. And yet, he is given repentance. God used Tamar to confront Judah with his sin. God used Tamar's acts. And, and it, the, the, the commentators are, are waffle back and forth on whether she's condoned for her acts or whether her acts are condemned. I would say her loyalty is condoned, but her act is declared as sinful when we're told that Judah and Tamar did not sleep together anymore. But God took that act to confront Judah with the fact that he was not righteous. Somebody else acted more righteous than him. A pagan Canaanite was more concerned about the offspring of the people of God than Judah was. Did you hear that? A pagan woman was more concerned about keeping the promises of God to give offspring to the people of God than Judah was, and it was a wake-up call for him. God uses circumstances in our lives sometimes to kind of shake us out of our forgetfulness of Him and out of our rebellion against Him and out of our our ongoing sins against Him. God will let us go for a time when we have turned our back upon Him. He'll let us go for a while seeing if we'll figure it out on our own. He's got all things in His hands. He knows what it takes, but He will let us go for a while in our sin until then finally He brings us face to face with the depth and depravity of our sin. And when we come to that event, when we come to that moment, we are called to declare, I am not righteous. God, forgive me. 
So God brings salvation from an unexpected area. And we see in this the greatness of God's grace in that even in the horror of Judah's sin, He gives Judah an opportunity to repent. And of course, we know from that genealogy in Matthew that we read, out of Judah's line came David the king. And David's greatest descendant, the king that sits upon the throne forever and ever, is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And every temptation that we suffer, he suffered as well, and yet without sin. He lived a righteous life and took on the cross the punishment for our sins so that grace might pour out from that cross upon us. And he rose again on the third day, and he is lifted and exalted into the heavenly throne room of God, where he intercedes for us where He looks after us. And that was an unexpected event in history because you would expect the Savior of a people, the God and Creator of the universe, He would bring a Savior that would be a glorious King. Yet He was beaten. He was bruised beyond recognition and hung upon a tree so that we might have salvation. When we consider God's unexpected salvation, when we consider the greatness of God's grace, we are led to two conclusions. First, God uses this account to confront those who are at war with God. Onan and Ur received the this world judgment of God on their sin, and each and every one of us will die at some point in our life unless the Lord returns first. We will stand before God's throne as sinners, as rebels, as traitors against God, those who have violated His law in every way conceivable, who have bowed to themselves instead of offering worship to God, worship that only God deserves. And God will declare judgment upon us unless we have embraced Jesus as our only hope. Unless we embrace the message of the cross. Unless when we are confronted here on this earth, we turn and repent. And secondly, God uses His account to confront those who have turned initially, who are reconciled to God, but are caught in sinful patterns within their lives. We oftentimes think of the good news of Jesus' work on the cross as something that is important to us at a date in the past. But the Gospel of Jesus Christ is important to me right now, because every now and then God has to take me by the collar, shake me a little bit and say, Ike, you've got these patterns in your life that still show that you think more of yourself. You still think more of the the opinions of other people. You are still blaming people today for events in your past. Then you think of me. Wake up. And repent and remember that you are covered by my grace and that gives you the strength that gives you the ability to say, I turn from those memories. I turn from that idolatry. I turn from that seeking of approval. And I come to God and find rest in him. I come to God and I worship Him. I come to God and I forgive those people who have wronged me and caused me shame in my past. God still uses those events. God still uses the Gospel, the greatness of that grace to fill me with forgiveness, to fill me with with 
whatever the opposite of shame is, glory and importance and dignity and the strength to pursue righteousness instead of pursuing my own agenda. This passage is here to ask us who will save the family of Jacob. Immediately it's Judah and Joseph as we'll see as the story progresses. But eternally it is the descendant of Judah, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If God is confronting you with sin today and you have never, ever said, I am a sinner before God, I deserve judgment, but I want forgiveness and glory. See myself or one of the elders after church. If you are somebody who has embraced the work of Christ on your behalf, and yet you say today, God, you are confronting me with an indwelling and deep-rooted sin in my life. See me or one of the elders today. Let us walk you through repentance. Let us walk you through salvation. Let us bring you to the place where you can truly find rest from the evil in this world, from the evil, the sin in your life, and you can find peace from warring with God. God uses His Word to confront us. God uses His Word to speak to us. God uses His Word to give us peace. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, We are your people and we are in need of repentance. Some of us may not be your people. We are in need of repentance as well. Lord, when you when you confront us with the sin in our life. Give us the strength and humility. To turn from it and to walk to you. Lord, there are realities in this world that that remind us daily that we are idolaters. That we are not holy as you call us to be holy. That, that we need forgiveness far more than we need to offer forgiveness. Remind us of the forgiveness that is ours through your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Remind us of the strength to pursue holiness because of what he has done for us. And Lord, when we are confronted with our sin, help us to repent. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.